0: Thank you, Kevin, for that introduction. Thank you, everybody, for coming here in inclement weather. I think you all deserve uh, appropriate applause for braving the the rain. Um, And it it allows for more uh, uh, of a conversational discussion. Um, I'd I'd like to suggest we start, since there's a smaller number of us, just by going around and everybody just giving their name and if they're a student or affiliated with IWP or not. And it just Please. Sorry. Fabulous. Thank you, Hannah. Fatih? Yeah. Great. Super. Thank you, Fatih. Please. I'm Linda Noel. I'm a regular attendee. You're a regular I'm Christopher Schenkman. I'm here with Linda. Okay. Linda is from Ohio. Fabulous. Where in Ohio? Up Cleveland area. Fabulous. Shaker Heights. Sure, I know Gates Mills, Yeah, great. Well, welcome. Thank you. Hi, I'm Brandon Huck. Hi, Brandon. I'm pursuing jobs with the U.S. government. Oh, fabulous. Good. Good, thanks. Okay, all right. Well, we're going to, I think timing works out well because I usually present for 20, 25 minutes or so, then usually question 20. So if we do it right, we come. And, I, and I'll stay after as, as, as Kevin said to sign books and there's always one or two questions people have going up so but thank you for that please. My name is Abby Donin, I'm a student at Mary Baldwin University. Oh great. And a political science agency. Super, excellent. Well thank you all for coming and uh, I'll, I'll just jump right in. Look what I want to do, it, it is a discussion about the book but but uh, it's largely uh, I'm going to focus on one core element sort of the main plot mechanism of the book. Because if, if you want to sort of get more into the narrative, you can you can buy the book, but but I want to set the context and give the sort of historical relevance that we're talking about here. Because the book takes place about half in the United States, about half in Europe. It's World War II era. It basically goes from Pearl Harbor when the U.S. entered the war in December nineteen forty one to about January forty six, so <laughs> almost a year of occupation, seven or eight months of occupation. Um, so that's the the time frame we're looking at. But the but the central Uh, driver of the plot and sort of the the peak of the uh, narrative is the Battle of the Bulge which take place uh, December 44 January 45 and that's the 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 peak of action and the most critical moment of the book and that's what and and I think people people know that term and they know that battle sort of in the abstract just the way you might know a Civil War battle so everybody sort of knows Antietam or Shiloh but but you don't necessarily know uh, some of the particulars or why it's consequential. So that's I want to spend a few minutes on that then I'll take you a bit into the book um, So what why is the Battle of the Bolts historically significant? And why do we still discuss it and give courses on it and look at it today? And there are three or four reasons why it's uh, front and center uh, to historians and military strategists. W- one is the sheer audacity of, of the war. Hitler launches this as its final Offensive it's the it's he's been losing ground since d-day right the allies have progressed against France the low countries and they're at the border of Germany and there's a lot of optimism on the side of the allies that um, You know Germany is Only months away from a resolution. So he's got he feels he's got one last punch and He's going to mass everything. He's got put it on the Western Front smash through the Allied lines, go all the way to the Channel Coast. The, the largest port that's operating at that time is Antwerp. He's going to seize Antwerp, smash the Western Front in two, shut down the entire Western Offensive. Which, if he had done it, would have worked. It might have only worked for six months or so, but it would have been enormously embarrassing and costly to the Allies. So, uh, so this, is, this is sort of the grand plan. And it is a very ambitious plan. But part of what's motivating Hitler uh, is he's seen this. He's seen this before and it worked before. He was there in 1940. This is exactly what he did four years before and it worked. He was able to, uh, France had a standing army almost as large as Germany's. France's army and Britain's army together were, were, was, was larger than Germany's. But he was able to beat them by rapid movement, by mechanized infantry, by combining it with air assault, and he was able to smash through to the coast and crumble France very quickly. So it's not completely a fantastic idea, though it certainly is ambitious. He also, if you go back in history, he also saw it work uh, or attempt a previous time when it failed, and that's in 1914 when Hitler is a corporal in the Austrian army. So he tries it in 1914, or he's part of the effort to try the Schlieffen Plan that grinds to a halt in front of Paris and it fails. He does it again in 1940 and it works. He says, okay, I'm going to do it again, the third time. He's got 400,000 troops, as I mentioned against a U.S. front line, please come in, we're just starting, against the U.S. front line <coughs> of 200,000. So it's almost exactly the two-to-one numerical superiority that military strategists say you need to do it. So uh, he's got, he's, there's a potential to do it. So the first point is audacity, second point is scale. Battle of the Bulge was and remains the largest single battle ever fought by the United States Army. As I mentioned a minute ago, we started with 200,000 GIs. We end up at peak with a million GIs fighting, a million Americans fighting. 600,000 direct combatant, 400,000 support troops. This is the U.S. Army today is only 500,000 plus. So this is larger than the, by, by almost a factor of two than the entire U.S. Army today is in this one battle. So it's extraordinary undertaking to put a million men in the field, having fighting on one campaign front. Um, The U.S. Army, when the curtain goes up, when the war starts, December 1941, was a little under 200,000, about 190,000 people, so a very small peacetime army. and We ramped that up in the course of four or five years to over eight million total serving in uniform, one million of which I said are in this battle. So we're ramping up from 200,000 to one million in just a few weeks, which is quite quite an undertaking. the so so that one million men is larger than the entire U.S. Army only twenty or thirty months before this battle took place. I mean, it shows the amount of manpower and resources and training that are put into this effort. The costs are quite significant. Twenty thousand uh, Americans killed, forty thousand casualties, twenty thousand POWs. So of the six hundred thousand direct combatants, eighty thousand paid a very serious price for uh, for their service. So it was uh, quite a bloody conflict as well. So, audacity, scale, <laughs> the third point I want to bring in is is uh, sc- scope and desperation. Just what are, what are the distinctive attributes of this battle that makes it noteworthy? By desperation, I mean, because this is Hitler's final offensive, you very much get the sense that uh, there is a recognition of deterioration of the rules of war. Uh, that the stakes are very, very high, and as a result, they're not they're not going to observe the conventional rules, and and we see this dramatically in a few ways uh, that are that are all uh, pretty tragic. One is um, the, the battle begins. Hitler launches his offensive of December sixteenth, nineteen forty four. December seventeenth, nineteen forty four, is an incident. So the very first full day of battle is an incident known as the Malmedy massacre where uh, a group of American POWs who who've been captured by the Germans in this immediate onslaught are murdered as POWs by SS troops. Uh, and we know this right away because a few survived, a few were in snow, and their bodies were in snow, and a few were able to, on the fringe, were able to get away. So we, we knew right away that this took place, <coughs> and the whole American front knows this right away. So you know, if you're a US GI, that if you surrender, you're going to be killed. So there's immediate deterioration in the conduct of war from, from day one. A similar element or a parallel element that serves to undermine uh, sort of the ethos of war is uh, one one attribute of the German uh, campaign was a was a uh, called Operation Greif, which you if you if you it's a very theatrical. Point and so if you see the movies, it's always featured in the movies on the Battle of the Bulge. Operation Greif is a program through which Hitler takes three thousand Wehrmacht troops, three thousand German troops, uh, who are capable of speaking fluent English. These guys who grew up in America, went to school in America, so you're able to find a few thousand. That's not so hard. He outfits them in American uniforms, outfits them with captured U.S. equipment, and they infiltrate U.S. lines. So you can you can imagine the uh impact that this would have uh enormous enormous uh challenges to u.s coordination and communications when you've got this uh, activity going on and so you'd have uh, you'd have incidents during uh, the battle of the bulge where a u.s patrol is returning to u.s lines from having been out of no man's land they return to u.s lines with a group of captured german soldiers <laughs> and they're waved in and as they get back to u.s lines it turns out that the US patrol were these German soldiers in disguise and the German POWs were of course feigning it and the entire US position is wiped out. So you had incidents such as that. And again, you can imagine the impact that has on the GI's at the time. So look, there were, there were other incidents that are sort of historically noteworthy, but I think that gives you a general picture of what's going on. It's, it's a mess, it's a mess and it's a large scale mess and it's uh, a lot of bad news and a very bloody situation. Now, I'll take it into the book for a minute and just talk a bit, because we've got, we've got a protagonist. Every story needs a protagonist, and I think a good, you know, good story is a story that goes from the particular, includes both the particular and the universal, right? I mean, it has a story has to take place in a specific place and time, a specific person is in that story, but unless there are broader issues, it's, it's just not as exciting to us. So, so the protagonist here is Carl Lavin who is a high school senior when Pearl Harbor's attacked. He's from Canton, Ohio. Uh, he signs up when he turns 18. He goes through various training commands and assignments stateside. Uh, he's, his final specialist training is he's a barman, B-A-R, Browning Automatic Rifle. Each, each rifle squad has one barman, which is a machine gun. It's a heavy gun, uh, but other people have M1s and he's got, uh, he's got the, the bar. Uh, And he's with a reserve division, or his division is held in reserve is probably a better way. He's with with a frontline infantry division, the 69th, but it's in reserve in Southampton, England, all through past, they they don't even get to England until after D-Day. They get there September '44. So they're training and waiting in Southampton, England for several months. And indeed, the expectation as the Allies advance across Europe, the expectation is: look, we're never going to get into combat. We're, you know, Eisenhower's not clear why Eisenhower's holding us in reserve, but, but here we are, and it looks like we're all going to have occupation duty when the when the fighting's over. This is sort of the view of things: September, October, November, forty-four. Christmas Day, nineteen forty-four. A Christmas banquet is being served in the mess hall, and as banquet as the food's being served, it's a, a lunch, mean a noon meal. Um, uh, all the riflemen are told to report to the barracks. Every rifleman in the in the division is told to report back uh, to the barracks. Once they're in their barracks, so every single rifle company, every, once they're in their barracks, they're told you have 15 minutes to have your barrack bags ready and you're getting on a truck. And they're taking a truck to the port of Southampton, they're putting on a boat and go across to Laharve, and they're put on a train, and they go to the front. So this is nine days into the battle where... Uh, the U.S. side is is uh, still getting mauled. Hitler's still in the ascendancy, still gaining ground. Hitler's logic, among other points, is that he has two weeks. He has two weeks running room. He knows the U.S. has a larger resource base, and the U.S. and all the Allies have a considerably larger resource base than Germany at that time. Um, but his view is it will take one week for uh, the Allies to fully understand what's going on, the magnitude of the assault. will sort of take a week for them to figure it out. And then it'll take a week to formulate a response because Eisenhower's got to coordinate with London and Washington, and everybody's got to figure out what to do. So he figures I've got two weeks running room, and if I can hit the coast in two weeks, I win, right? So that's a it's a it's a gamble to be sure. It is it is audacious. Uh, so here we are nine days into it, and uh, the rifle company of the 69th Division is stripped out, all the rifle companies, 2,000 some GI's, and sent to the front. U.S. U.S. forces do something different from every other combatant nation, allied or or opponent nations. U.S. uh, replaces uh, casualties on an individual basis. Every other nation takes units off the front, reconstitutes the unit, and puts them back in. So they get a chance to sort of work together and, and get some kind of internal cohesion established, and the U.S. does not do that. U.S. says if we've got to casually put a guy in and they're sort of individually replaceable. That, after the war, this is universally viewed as a, as a huge mistake that just degrades unit effectiveness. But this is what we're living with at the time. So he is thrown into the 84th Division, and he fights, <coughs> he fights through the Battle of the Bulge and two, two final battles, the Battle of the Rhine and the Battle of the War, and ends up on VE Day on the Elbe, which was the demarcated... Boundary for the U.S. forces uh, after the, the Yalta Agreement about where we would stop and where uh, the Russians would stop on the Elbe. So the heart of the book is that it's final uh, sort of six months of fighting through the Battle of the Bulge, fighting through these other battles, then occupation duty. Uh, Carl says, "Look, the first week he sent in uh, the rifle company is, is replenished and they're at full strength. Second week there's replenishments, but they're not at full strength." It can't the replenishments can't keep up with casualties. After the third week, there's no more replenishments. We're tapped out. There's no more people to throw in. Uh, and so it's just a of deterioration. So within 30 days of combat, uh the unit, the, the rifle company is at half strength, right? Even with replenishments, they're still degraded half strength. And Carl is in the top half of seniority of the remaining half. So in 30 days, he's in the top quartile of seniority of his unit right, which just shows you the amount of attrition that's taking place in that, in that, in that rifle company is about 150 men at that time. Uh, And indeed, when I'm going through the military records to look at the history of this company, this company uh, has something like 150% casualties in the course of the war. And you ask, arithmetically, how is that, how can you have more than 100% casualties? in, in, in just how does the math on that work? And I had to ask Uh, One of the archivists, one of the military historians, you know, the the math here just doesn't make sense to me. And uh, they said, yeah, here's what it means. People here probably intuit this if they've spent time in this field. It means uh, somebody gets killed or wounded, somebody's a casualty, just replaced, and that person's killed, and that replacement is killed. So you get sequential, sequential replacement, sequential death. So you end up with 150% of the people in the unit, casualties even though the unit itself is at full strength right so you have you still have everybody in the unit who's supposed to be there come ve day more or less it's a little under uh, but you had you've lost 150 percent of your unit so you actually 3x have sort of churned through that unit in the course of six months um, so that's the that's the context we're in uh, I'll, I'll read with your permission I'll read a little bit from the book and then we can go to go to questions uh, about what's going on and let me I, I should tell you, 30 or 40% of the text of the book are letters that Carl Lavin wrote to his, mainly to his mother, uh, which I think provide a good, very good, you know, very lucid, very strong narrative letters uh, for peacetime activity. They're very good. For wartime, of course, they're not because you're under wartime censorship. So we have to go to other historical sources for what happens in wartime. But let me give you an example from uh, basic training, uh, which is in the form of a letter here. Dear folks, here's what we did yesterday. Got up at 0500, 5am 5 to you, which was not too unusual since we've been doing it every single day. Reveille at 515 to 525. Chow at 530 to about 550. Then try to get washed, make your bed, clean out your barracks, prepare for inspection, put on your leggings, fill your canteen. The water is no good here it has to be medicated. And police the area in about 45 minutes. Then we march off to the training area with pack and guns, either a 1917 model Enfield or a Thompson submachine gun. From 0700 to 1100, we have classes of 50 minutes each, separated by a two minute wind sprint and an eight minute rest period. The classes are on first aid and gas, mostly so far, but we'll be having many more different ones. We just started motor maintenance and driving, and we've also had military courtesy, the articles of war, I can be put up for life for not shining my shoes, AW-94, contact on Becoming a Soldier, and map reading. Then there is an hour of drill and formation exercising. From 1200 to 1330, we eat and have a rest period, most of which is taken up waiting in line to get some food, waiting in line to get seconds, and waiting in line to wash your mess gear. To 1730, we have some more classes sometimes. Usually, the last hour is spent doing something a little more exerting. Like yesterday, we had a hike. I believe I wrote before saying how hard it was marching 3 miles in 50 minutes with a pack in 85 degree heat. Well, yesterday we marched 5 miles in 45 minutes with a pack and rival in 90 degree heat. These marches are really the only thing that I don't like about the Army and I have a violent hatred of them. They are nothing but torture from the first step to the last and there's no deeper discouragement than to have your leg muscles paining, your shoulders rubbed sore, and come to some rough or sandy ground and realize you still have four more miles to go, but can do absolutely nothing but continue to march and march at top speed. Then toward the end, your eyes start to smart from the sweat washing through them, and you hope you won't stumble because you're sure you won't be able to start up again. But the funny thing is, once you're back and you put down your pack and gun, the relief takes all the tiredness away and you don't throw yourself down on the bunk as you so ardently desired out on the hike. You lay down for two or three minutes, Drink a quart and a half of water, usually, and start joking about the hike. So that's, I think, I think, in some respects, it's a very typical letter from basic training that probably has been written a million times in every country in the world, that there's, there's clearly pride, there's clearly a desire to share with his parents what's going on, and there's, there's complaints about about being pushed. Uh, and I, So you get kind of an upbeat, descriptive uh, narrative that uh, generally with it. But, but, as you can imagine, uh, the situation takes on a uh, far uh, grimmer tone as you get into combat and you uh, go through that narrative and i'll read you uh, i'll read you an episode from uh, from combat itself soldiers were required to inspect every room and every building in a town you go through houses office buildings and factories looking for people looking for ammunition, looking for weapons. Usually two or three guys go through a house together. You don't want to go in by yourself. There's always a little bit of a leery feeling when you open a door because if someone was in there and wanted to shoot you, he was in a perfect position to do so. So it was a nervous thing going in. You had to uh, kick in the door if it's locked, put your boot right by the door handle, and go through every single room in that house. In one town, Carl and two others had just finished going through a house, and they heard gunfire, They saw two other GIs just about 10 yards away taking aim at a group of about four German soldiers a quarter of a mile away. So this is a very good job for a barman because Carl's got an automatic rifle and he can spray bullets and either force the Germans to surrender or cut them down. So Carl begins moving up to the line of fire to assist the other two GIs when he hears his sergeant's voice saying, Lavin, Lavin. And Carl recognizes the voice, but he doesn't see the sergeant looking around. He up here, up here, and he looks higher, he sees an arm waving through a window with crossbars in it in the house next to the one he had just inspected, and it's his sergeant saying, hey, come here. You'll get a good shot from up here, Sergeant Johnson says. Carl hollers back, well, the Germans are getting away. Sergeant Johnson says, I know, you've got a perfect shot from up here. Get up here. Get to the window. Hurry up. Bring your bar. Get up here quick. Carl immediately recognizes this to be a bad command because of the amount of time it would take him to run to the back of the house find the hallway, locate the stairs and scramble up, the Germans are going to be in the woods and it would have taken just a few seconds to assist the riflemen. But as a soldier, he's got to obey his sergeant. He gets to the back of the house as fast as he can. He finds his sergeant upstairs, firing through bars in a bathroom window. Just as Carl steps in the door to the bathroom, Sergeant Johnson catches a bullet in his elbow and staggers back. He falls about halfway back to Carl. Carl catches him as best he can, eases him to the floor. Well, now Carl's job is Johnson's safety. He drags Johnson to the hallway in a half-sitting position to get him out of harm's way. And once there, Carl would take a look at Johnson's wound. You see blood coming out of that elbow. You know it's an artery because you can count Johnson's pulse by looking at the blood spurt out of that. Well, never mind me, says Johnson. Get those Jerry's. Get the Jerry's. Carl's reaction is to ignore him. But You've got to do what you're told, so Carl goes back into the bathroom. Bullets are still streaming in through the bathroom window, but the window's about three feet off the ground, so Carl can crawl beneath it, get right beneath the window, and bob his head up and down to try to get a sense of the situation. He bobs his head up, and what he sees is startling. It's two GIs shooting through the window. Carl starts his head up one more time for confirmation, and he feels a million bee stings all over his face. A bullet had hit the crossbar right in front of him, peppering his face with iron shards and rust. Carl's not hurt, but it's a heart-stopping moment where he has to collect his thoughts. Uh, Still, he confirms that these are GIs shooting in the window. And uh, he even recognizes who they are. Carl rushes back to Johnson. Those are our guys. They aren't Germans. They thought you were Jerry. Johnson gives it a moment's thought and says, get Smitty. Get Smitty. Now, Smitty's the squad medic. Smitty always said, never. Yell medic. Make sure you yell Smitty without come without being diverted, helping somebody else. So Carl rushes downstairs to get Smitty, but he stops at the front door. He doesn't want to get shot by his own man. So he takes off his helmet, his field pack. He drops his bar, throws down his ammunition, makes himself as light as possible. And he bolts from the door, hoping the other GIs recognize him. And it works. His helmet's off. All the other GIs are in bushes at the edge of the yard. But they start yelling, hey, Lavin, Lavin get down, Jerry's in there. Carl says, no, that wasn't Jerry, that's Johnson to me inside. Yell back, are you crazy? You and Johnson were shooting at us? No, Johnson was shooting over your head. Hey, Johnson's hurt. Get Smitty. Johnson's hurt. Get Smitty. Carl's yelling. The other GIs joined the yell for Smitty. Smitty decides the fastest way to get to the scene was to jump a fence. Unfortunately, Smitty's foot caught a rail and he went sailing with his medical equipment thrown loose. Through the air went the morphine syrets, the sulfalimylide, the gauze bandages, the compresses, the surgical tape, the tincture of methylate, the aspirin, bismuth, paragoric, sodium amytol, and the tags for logging morphine injections. GIs helped Smitty pick up his gear. Hey, come on, Johnson's hurt, stop fooling around. So that's a vignette of combat, good. That might be a good place to uh, to stop. Uh, i be very happy to talk about the battle, about the war, about the book, or other questions uh, people might have. But I know we're a little pressed, so 25. Please. Yeah. In one of the home, uh, the writer finds it. says there's a discussion of gas. Mm. Well, they have to be trained in it. They're issued gas masks. They have to be trained in how to put on a gas mask, how to recognize it, what kind of call and order goes out. So they're just trained in how to deal with it. But the Allies weren't using gas. But you, you have that as a, as part of your part of your basic training. No, no. But you don't know that until after the fact. Well, let's say this: they only used it against civilians. They only they didn't they didn't use it in combat. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, sir. It's Three right. thousand, right, right, English, right. And they sure, people. right. Um, is there anything else, like you know, about like the details, of how far some of those able to infiltrated? Because if you think like tactically, you know, you would, if you're a journalist who's that you would hold your position for as long as possible. Right. Right. Up, like, all the way home. Right. Right, these <laughs> could could be in the room right now. I want each of you to check your DNA and make sure. No, you don't know. You don't know. Um, look, this this is a fascinating story about what happened to these three thousand. Uh, first of all, they are violating the Geneva Convention. Right, you are required in combat to be in the uniform of your country. If you're not in the uniform of your country, you are a spy. You are subject to be shot. You right. So all of these guys are subject to, be shot. but they don't know this. Some of them raise questions. I mean, they're they're just told. They're just said, "Hey, who speaks English? We've got a special program for you," and they're interviewed. And people, you know, just just as you would find today, people have uh, grew up. Their family was in the U.S. for a bit, or they went to school in Britain or whatever. Or they, you know, the people come from different backgrounds. They have an American mom and a German dad, so it's no surprise you can find three thousand folks in Germany who have very strong English, fluent English. Uh, but they're they're lied to. They said, "Don't worry about it. this. is a special project." Some of the more sophisticated ones start asking questions like, "Wait, this is illegal, isn't it?" And they said, "Don't worry about it. Don't worry. We've worked it out, right?" So they're they're at risk. They are committing a war crime by doing this. Uh, and indeed, the ones who are captured are shot. Uh, pro question. But but a large number of them make it back to German lines. Though no, they had very, to your point, they had very specific missions to go capture this bridge, capture this outpost. Because look, three thousand is not a huge number. It's enough. It's enough to do specific jobs but you're not going to conquer Paris with 3,000 guys walking into, you know, 500 miles across France undetected. I mean, you're going to be detected over time. And so what happens very quickly is uh, uh, screen, all sorts of screens go up, right? You can imagine how the Americans react to this. First, the Germans go through special training. You have to take these Wehrmacht soldiers and train them to act like GIs. And so there's, you know, we have a a more informal culture. They have a more formal culture. So they go through training on American GI culture. So for example, Wehrmacht troops cannot put their hands in their pocket in uniform. GIs can. So they said, it's okay. American troops, uh, Wehrmacht troops cannot lean against the wall in uniform. American GIs can. Wehrmacht troops cannot chew gum in uniform. American GIs can. So we're a, you know, our popular culture is more formal. So they go through this Training to say we're going to make you a, you are going to make you as American as we can do, right? It's going to work with some people. It's going to be harder with others, right? Some are easier to find, and some are, are harder to find. But one of the things that trips them up is a spelling error in the official U.S. government identification card. But but the spelling error is on the U.S. side. The regular card the U.S. government produces has a spelling error in it. The Germans clean it up. The Germans fix the spelling error. So now you know when you're looking at people's ID, if you see the one without the spelling mistake, it's then, right? And then the German, the Americans go through a lot of other, and you can imagine the kind of screens. I mean, it, it, you, you'd right away put in screens on popular culture, right? So you ask people uh, sports, you ask people uh, 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 trivia, you ask people pop movie trivia. You know, there's a, there's a uh, David Niven, the actor, is of course, uh, he's he's serving in the active British duty, and he's pulled out. And asked who won he who won the academy award and he said i don't know but i was nominated for it last year but uh, but i'm here you know fighting for the british army this year so general omar bradley who's an army group commander is pulled out because he stopped at a crossroads and asked by a gi what's the capital of illinois and again omar bradley answers it correctly springfield and the gi says no it's chicago and you're you know you're obviously a nazi spot they pull them out they have to you know they have to check so, I mean, so you get a lot of confusion, a lot of a lot of mishaps out of that, but the point is you can retard their effectiveness. They Look, they had, I think, a high degree of effectiveness and so in sowing confusion, but, but their actual military effectiveness was limited because you only got a few thousand people. But they did, when you parachute somebody in an American uniform and say, your job is to grab that bridge, they did that. That stuff worked. I mean, But their job was not then to, you know, see how many years you can hang out in an American uniform because sooner or later you have to show up, sooner or later there's a unit that owns you. Sooner or later you have to go in for chow and a paycheck and sit down. So you can't just sort of show up and say, I can't remember my unit number and I don't have a. I mean they have to give somebody a name, they have to check records. So that that I think that in long term infiltration would not work. But but short term it can be very deadly. Yes. And um, what was the name of that operation? Grife G R I E F, which I think means condor. Yeah, but it's, uh, yeah, it's a fascinating because, it, you know, when somebody tells you this, you say, well, that's Hollywood, right? That didn't really happen. You say, oh, this this really did happen. It's very ambitious. That's me. Yes, sir. What was going on in the war in the air? Yeah. Well, this is this is an important part of the story because U.S. had a very strong air superiority at this point, a real air dominance. But the winter weather was so bad. You had ground fog. You couldn't put people, uh, you couldn't put your planes up. So for several weeks... Uh, that, that that air superiority is neutralized you can't attack you this is tactical air, right? You're not you're not trying to bomb an oil refine where you could say if I get you know with I get within 50 yards or 100 yards of dead center. I'm gonna put I'm gonna damage an oil fine You're trying to you're gonna try to stop people in the woods So you need you need visibility to be able to use your air power And then we didn't have it but after several weeks uh, It returns and US can bring in air power, right? So what happens I mentioned before Hitler said he's got two weeks uh that turned out to be uh, false. Uh, That turned out not to be true. Day one, December 16th, when they smashed through US lines, Eisenhower's already detaching divisions from Patton and giving them to Omar Bradley. So he's already moved, he moves two divisions the first day. So he's completely wrong on the second part of his equation, that it's going to take a week to coordinate with London. London and, look, Eisenhower is the supreme commander. He has total operational command. He doesn't need to check with Churchill at FDR and George Marshall about field decisions. He's running the show. So Hitler doesn't understand the amount of authority we give our field commanders. right? So he he didn't have to check with anybody. He knows what's going on. He's making decisions about that. And he's wrong on the first part of it. That takes a week to figure it out. It might have taken more than a few days to figure out the scale of it, because, again, Carl's not stripped out until day nine. And Hitler's in ascendancy; he's still gaining ground for two to three weeks, right before it grinds to halt, sort of about three weeks into it, and then he's beaten back for about three more weeks. So, so it might have taken a while to fully understand the size of it, but they knew day one something was up, and we're going to move people against that threat. So. Yes. I have a question on uh, how the battle turns. Yeah. Is it just sheer numbers on the side of the allies? Works well against this event. I think it's largely uh, the numbers and material air power comes into it. Um, Hitler's got a lot of constraints he's got he's got fuel constraints he's got weapon constraints so he can only throw a punch and that's as far as we go, there's not there's not a lot of depth there. so they're still they're still pretty deadly as you get into January February but by early January, say certainly six weeks after it starts, it's back to where we were back to status quo ante, right? And you're in and now you're into German territory. And there are there are considerable battles and casualties you get in February March, but you can tell the tempo is dropping a bit, that he just doesn't have the he doesn't have the force that he once had. What he's got is home field advantage. And so it's you're still in a damp, very dangerous situation. Right? Only until April, I think, does you realize you advanced so far into Germany, there's just not much left. There's nobody left to fight. So, yes, sir. They surrender. VE Day is uh, May eighth, right? After the surrender, surrendered, was there anything like found that Hitler, like his scientists, like prior to the war beginning, like there was like a lot of like research stuff all over the world, picking up stuff, finding things, sure. 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 Well, they had a they had a lot of advanced uh, 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 warfighting capability. They had trouble putting a lot of the, into production, but they had a nuclear program, which we used saboteurs to do. They had a heavy water plant in Norway, which uh, which was destroyed by commandos. So we kept we knew we knew that they had a nuclear program, and this was this was uh, Niels Bohr, the Danish physicist, was exfiltrated out to say Hitler's doing this. Einstein wrote FDR a letter saying you know, nuclear programs possible and Hitler's going to be getting one. We've got to get one going too. So we knew that things were going. It didn't necessarily know how much. So we had sabotage campaigns against them that have fortunately kept them out of that business. But they had rockets. The U.S. didn't have rockets. They had the V2, V1. They had unmanned airplanes that were you know, unmanned bombs. I call them drones now that send against London, right? The V2 program, V1 program. So they had sophisticated weapons and they had the first jet fighter. All of our fighter aircraft were prop, turboprop, piston driven. They in, innovated the jet fighter, The uh, measures, I think it was 262, but this is very late in the war, so they never produced the numbers. I mean, you're, you're doing enough damage to their industrial base, they just can't produce enough at that point. But, so they had smart people on their side, but uh, fortunately, they just couldn't deploy what they invented rapidly enough, and we were able to prevail. Oh, you had fighter. You had guys in the most advanced fighter playing around the P fifty one Mustang. Passed by a guy in a jet, right? Saying, "What was that?" Right. But luckily, there were very small numbers produced, right? So, uh, so we could still win. It's very late in the day, right? And then, and look, they've ground through all of their pilots. I mean, you can't shake and bake a pilot. These guys take not just original training, might be months, but then it, it, you, you're it's a craft skill, so it requires a year or two years of combat activity before you're really good. So if you're a U.S. fighter pilot and you've been fighting for two or three years and you're going up against a guy who's two weeks out of basic training, I can tell you what's going to happen, barring barring uh, scientific variance. But you're going to be able to beat that guy. He's just not up to his game yet. So so the point is, once you deplete your pilot population, you're at a huge... Dis- this is the same thing happened to Japan. You just can't reconstitute it as fast as you deplete it. Yep. Sorry, you had another question? Did you? Yeah, Carl Labin is my father. Yeah, He made it home, and uh, yeah, and Pad uh, never had a peaceful life. He said when he got out of the Army if I never have a, another lucky day as long as I live, I will still die a lucky man, right? Because I should not have lived through those six months. You know, if you're with a unit that has 150% casualties, everybody's getting killed and the replacements are getting killed and and you're sort of one of the few dozen guys left standing at the end of this mess just back in business in ohio raised a family four kids in Canton, ohio uh sugar provision company's family business just providing the hot dogs for the cleveland indians it was the high point of the the business so yeah the british uh, troops and the american troops Oh, yeah, absolutely. They're on the, the northern flank is Britain. At that time, of course, Britain's been at the war longer than the U.S., right? So they, they've suffered more. So they have fewer personnel, and the U.S. is the larger nation and fresher to the fight. But uh, the the head of the British, so Eisenhower essentially got three, Eisenhower supreme commander, supreme allied commander. So Britain, all of the, well, there's, there's French combatants, there's Polish divisions, there's other units in there. But the British are the second largest. The Canadians have a very large contingent. But all of the allies agree you've got to have one alliance. So, uh, but each country is uh, uh, contribution is run by their own nationals. So, Field Marshal Montgomery is commander of the British Army Corps, but he reports to Eisenhower. So, the British troops fight as British units under British command, reporting to Supreme Commander, right? And all of the nations have. Uh, liaison officers to Supreme Command, but you're all part of a picture, you're all part of a staff picture. This is sort of the how NATO operates, right? That you have to have somebody running the show, but you have to have everybody has a voice, everybody has a seat at the table, right? And there's a there's a quote by Eisenhower. You know, Montgomery was a little bit like Patton, a very effective warrior, but also a very strong personality. And and he had I think maybe a little bit like Patton, he had sort of folk hero status back home. He was the hero of Al Alamein, he was the hero of North Africa. So he comes, you know, in very dark days of the war, he's, you know, starts winning battles. So he's a fighter and he wins. So he's got that national respect back, back home. But Eisenhower's quote is, Montgomery was a, uh, uh, a wonderful man to work under, a challenging man to work with, and an impossible man to work over. So uh, that, you know, all of these, I mean, it is hard, it is hard to say, but look, it, it worked, it worked. It just, you know you're going to have personalities because you want aggressive people in the, in the, in the mix. And so you're going to get aggressive people, and you know, you, you know, you've got to manage them. And that was part of Eisenhower's genius, I think. He had very high emotional intelligence, very good, strong management skills, and he had the faith of Churchill and Roosevelt and all of his peers to say, you're going to get us out of this mess. Good. Yeah, please. I was born in uh, 57. My dad was born in 24. Yeah, my dad didn't pass away until four years ago. So he he never discussed the war. He never discussed his role in the war. He never discussed what he did. Never discussed combat. Uh, And it was just locked up. It was just uh, something never came up. And what happened, it's Clifton, right? Is it your name? Christopher, sorry, Christopher. Uh, what happened about eight or 10 years ago, three developments happened all about the same year, uh, and, and it startled me, but one was the Tom Hanks movie Saving Private Ryan, the second was this HBO series by Steven Spielberg from the Stephen Ambrose book um, Band of Brothers, and the third is this Ken Burns documentary uh, uh, The War by, by Ken Burns. All three of them were fabulous, and all three of them uh, looked at the war from the GI's point of view. And what struck me, what startled me about that is I said, look, my dad had to be doing what these guys are doing. My dad fought in Europe, and he might not have had a heroic moment or there might not be a Hollywood movie, but, but he was marching where they marched and shooting where they shot and eating what they ate. I have got. To, I said to my dad, I just, let me buy a tape recorder and just, I don't even know what unit you served. I don't know where you went through basic training. I don't know who your commanding officer was. I don't know anything about what you're doing. And so we ended up with about a 30 or 40 page monograph just from my interview of him, um, just a family document that was not circulated. And it was, Christopher, two or three years after that, that I found in the furnace room of the house these letters, about 300 letters that he had written mainly to his mother, that provided a lot of color and context and really built out the story. Also, it allowed, at this, this point, my dad's in his 70s, it allowed me to go back to my dad and, and review all letters with him so we could actually piece through what what are you really saying here what's happening here and he could comment on it so it made a much better document so uh, for example I'm just trying to discern what's happening in the letter one letter some some are like what I read you kind of kind of straightforward what's happening some are more confusing Uh, he writes in one letter from Europe uh, tomorrow I'm going to see Mr. Ginsburg, and I said what this this comment is so strange it's out of context we don't even know who, who is Mr. Mr. Ginsburg's not referred to at any other point? Who is, and, and why would you ever write that to your dad? And he said, oh, this, this sentence is a code. My dad had asked me to write him when I'm going into combat, which of course you can't under wartime censorship, you can't see that, so we said this is a sentence that means I'm going into combat, and it's tomorrow. And uh, you know, they have, this, they have this U.S. Army mail service where it takes about two weeks for a letter to get back to the U.S it takes about two weeks for a letter to get to the U.S. to the front. So he writes this, and he gets a note back a month later from his dad saying, who's Mr. Ginsburg? And why are you telling—I thought you were fighting. I mean, what are you telling me this—I mean, his father had forgotten the code. And, of course, since he's still under wartime censorship, he can't say it's a code. So he has to just—he says something like— Regarding Mr. Ginsburg, think real hard about our last conversation, and if you still can't remember, I'll just have to tell you when I see you. That's all. That's all you can say. So you get, you're able to tease out uh, different interpretations. There's a, there's a uh, comment here. You know, we know John Steinbeck as a novelist, but in the war, he was a war correspondent. And this is your question about how this project gets started. So this quote is John Steinbeck writes as a war correspondent. There are really two wars, and they haven't much to do with each other. There's a war of maps and logistics, of campaigns, of ballistics, armies, divisions, and regiments, and that is General Marshall's war. Then there's the war of the homesick, weary, funny, violent, common men who wash their socks and their helmets, complain about the food, and lug themselves and their spirit through as dirty a business as the world has ever seen and do it with humor and dignity and courage. So I said, look, what I saw with Private Ryan and Band of Brothers in the war, there's enormous American interest in that second war. So this book is a book about the second war, about what happens to GIs and very, these are American teenagers in very, very tough situations. Do they rise to the moment? Do they behave morally? Do they do their job? And then and how, how do people act in, in high stress, high risk situations? So it's. But. Yes. You mentioned about how your father never talked about yeah. it. Yeah. Um, I mean, Tom Rokha talked about that in the greatest generation. That these were young men who were teenagers who had gone through the Great Depression. It was through one of the hardest times in our country, only to face a world war. Yeah. As young men. And they went through it, they did what the they could do. And as he describes it, um, they got on with their lives. They didn't. this last decade and a half especially with the World war II monument that they've been talking about I, look I think that's a very accurate discussion my my dad didn't talk about it because mm-hmm. it's it's unbecoming I mean he look he, he he once said something effective look the real heroes uh, didn't come home he said N- nothing I did speaking for my dad nothing I did was heroic I did what I was supposed to do but everybody did what they were supposed to do so what right do I have to call attention to my service and what I did, uh, there's, there's nothing special. And, uh, there's also, I think you're also right. That, that great depression heritage, I know guided a lot. I mean, you're very, very grateful for what you have, you know, that, uh, uh, his life was defined by limitations. Whereas my generation, baby boomers and younger people around the table. Their life is just defined by lack of limit. You know, you can do whatever you want in life and, uh, for, you know, hopefully for good, but, uh, but the point is, if you grew up in the 1920s, 1930s, you said, look, you're lucky to have a job, my friend, you're lucky to have food on the table, and uh, you know, whatever your job is, you should be very, very grateful that you can provide for your family and so forth and get through this, and uh, so it, it's just a very different view of life, that life can be harsh and you should be grateful for what you have, whereas we would say, look, life is a fantastic opportunity for you to try and experiment and do creative things, so it's a huge generational difference. Good. Good. Yes, sir. Yeah, you share a little bit from your career in public service, and that all your Well, uh, I'll tell you the one connection between my dad—it's sort of like the previous question. My dad's life and my life is my dad would tell us uh, that he didn't have uh, he, look—he had a good life. He never complained. He had a—he had a very—I think he, he described himself as very happy with his life and his family and his situation, very fortunate in many respects. So he didn't—he didn't. He didn't Go through life with any kind of chip on the shoulder, but he did say, "Look, his life was was a life of limitation. You know, what did the world have to offer? Well, he never had a chance to see. So his message us was, explore and travel and try be experimental and and you know if you want to try a business or you want to try something, go go do it. So he's always very very excited for us when we said you know something I'm going to go to this city and try. He said you know that's fantastic. So sort of the opposite of the the parent, the conservative parent, it was sort of the experimental parent because he said he never, he never, he'd never been to New York City when he, the army put him in New York City. He'd never been to London. Never been outside the U.S. So these, so these were just big moves for him. And then he spent the rest of his life back home in small town Ohio. So that that part did change. Where he's excited about us going to school and pursuing careers that took us around the world. But that that was the only. I look. I I thought I ended up going undergraduate to the, a little bit like IWP, but I went to the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown because I thought international affairs was sort of the most important issue facing America. This was at the time of Cold War, and I went right into government when Reagan was elected. I spent uh, almost all of those eight years with Reagan in the White House, National Security Council, State Department. When George H.W. Bush came in, I went to run the Asia operations at the Commerce Department. I was a political appointee. When Clinton came in, I was fired. Uh, But I said, I've got two good skills. I speak Chinese. I'm good with numbers. I went to Hong Kong, started work for Citibank. I worked for Bank of America, worked in private equity, I, so I had a good time in Hong Kong and Singapore for those, that Clinton period when George W. Bush came in, he said, will you be ambassador to Singapore? And then I was subsequently Under Secretary of Commerce. So I've spent about half my life in government, about half my life in business. I've been very, very lucky. I've had a chance to serve, chance I hope to make a difference, and it's been a lot of fun as well. So um, now I've got a book to share and a story to share as well. So, But I think that's one of the, I mean, I don't know if there's any particular lessons there, except. You know, we are all fortunate to be living at a time when you can go and do whatever you want. If you want to open a restaurant, open a restaurant. If you wanna write computer code, you can write computer code. If you wanna write a rock opera, you can write a rock opera. But the point is you can find funding and collaborators and marketing and you can you can find this online. You can find it for free. So so there's no barriers. I mean there's there's some risk or cost to that kind of world as well, potentially, but boy. The, the upside and potential of it is far greater than the downside, and this is the most uh, the most open generation in history of the world, where if you go for hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, your fate in life was determined almost 100% by your parents' status. Whatever their profession was was your profession, whatever their opportunity was yours, and there'd be a world that would, would be discriminate harshly against people based on race or religion or gender, that, that based on where, where you came from, you think doors were closed to you, and you say, now, Fortunately, we're at a time where doors just aren't closed or they're not closed the same way that you can make your way into some kind of profession. If you want to do something, you can do it, right? So it's kind of exciting. There's, a, there's Again, there's a risk or a cost potentially with that as well, but it's an extraordinary time to be alive, right? So, cool. So thank you for coming. I know some people have to leave. Why don't we uh, formally wrap up the session here? I'll stay here and talk. I'll inscribe if you want to get the book. I'd be delighted. I'll inscribe it for you. I can't say it's a good Father's Day gift, unless you're 364 days early, you want to get one for next year, but uh, but I'd be very happy to inscribe it for you and very happy to continue the conversation while people, people get their books, and I know some folks have to go. So thank you for coming, thank you.